Hello and welcome to episode 193 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. How are you? Hello, Jason. It's been a very long time since we've spoken. About 14 hours now, is it? I can't count, but sure, we'll say that. So we had breakfast together. We were talking about this before we hit record, and then it got a little more philosophical than I had assumed it would, and or metaphysical perhaps. And, and so I said, okay, stop the conversation. We need to hit record. So here we are. And we had breakfast together in Stockholm. I'm still in Stockholm. I am decidedly not in Stockholm. You are now. not no. in Stockholm. And we were talking, it's five after 10 in the evening in Stockholm, minus six. So it's what? 4.05 and 45 there seconds p.m. in New York. Thank you, sir. But, but, but your day, even though we have been up for roughly – we both got up about 7 a.m. Central European Standard Time this morning. Your day has been much longer. I am exhausted and I haven't done anything today. The time that you have experienced, and, and this is what we were talking about before we hit record, is the time you experience traveling, the act of traveling, even though the, the hours are the same. And granted, Jason's day will end up, in fact, being longer than mine because he'll stay up till whenever he stays up and then he'll go to bed and I will have long since gone to bed, hopefully. But the experience of traveling is one that, that you experience more time than you have actually been awake for, completed in your day. I, I don't know how to describe it. But it was one of those things where I was like, yeah, you've had a much longer day than I have already. And we've been up for the same exact amount of time. Yeah. And I, I feel exhausted. But I mean, I didn't do much of anything today. I took a very nice train to a very nice airport to a pretty okay airline lounge. And I boarded a pretty okay <laughs> airline cabin and sat for 10 hours and watched a couple movies and I watched a couple TV shows. Then I breeze through customs. You don't even have to take your passport out in the US anymore if you have global entry, which is wild. But then I got on a bus, then I got on a train, and then I got on another train, and now I'm home drinking a beer. I'm exhausted, but we've been up the same amount of time. But I guess I do have that whole jet lag thing going on. It was an A330 today on SAS. So the cabin pressure and, and humidity thing that the A350 brings to the table is not present on the A330. So I do feel just physically tired from this day of doing practically nothing. Yeah, it's a fascinating feeling because you – and I think it's also that the human brain, you know, for as long as we've been traveling by air, I feel like air travel is faster than the human brain was it kind of evolved to go. It's like one of those things where you talk about infinitesimally small values and infinitesimally large values. The human brain just can't comprehend them. And I feel like the speed with which you can fly around the world is one of those values that the human brain just hasn't accounted for yet. Like humans are not supposed to be able to visit two continents in less than 12 hours. Wow. That did get deep. I mean, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I had breakfast at the but hotel I feel like that's what it is. Then I had a lunch. Then I had another lunch. And really, we got to Newark in time for like a late lunch even. So even just if you're looking at meals consumed during the day, I'm up to like my sixth meal already today. It just makes my brain hurt. Right. Exactly. It makes the brain hurt. But 
you made it, and there was some concern that you would not, given the weather in Newark or or the air soup. Yes, pretty gross here in New York, but thankfully it was above minimums, at least for a large wide-body aircraft with Autoland, which I kind of felt like we used today, but I'll, I'll never know. But it, it didn't quite get to the level of bad that I thought it would. I think at, at JFK, they had a bit more fog. But thankfully, we just cruised on in. We went straight to the gate after being towed in because Newark things. Uh, all in all, we, we got in a little bit of a delay because we had to de-ice in Stockholm because it was so damn cold. It wasn't the cold because you posted that picture and I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Cause, because I don't think I've never not experienced de-icing in Stockholm in the winter. Well, the wing was frosty. Because the humidity in the air is 90%. It's a little weird getting de-iced there's when there's, when there's really from. nothing on the wing. But yeah, there, there was indeed frost and that needed to be taken care of. But all in all, we got in just a, a couple minutes late, no big deal. But one of my better flights with SAS this year, I think. Well, good, good. Yeah, I mean, coming over was – my flight was very quick. Arriving in Stockholm on a Sunday morning at 7 a.m. is always an interesting experience because if you've ever been to Stockholm or if you've ever been to – Anywhere that isn't a big city at 7 a.m. on a Sunday morning, because Stockholm at 7 a.m. on a Sunday morning is decidedly not a big city. They consciously decide they're not a big city on Sunday morning. And I kind of appreciate that, but also it's a ghost town, a very beautiful, picturesque ghost town, but it's a ghost town. And nothing opens until 12, and then everything closes at 4. And everything closes at 4. But we made it work, and we rode some bicycles, and that was fun. I'll put a link in the show notes just because it was that much fun. And we in, we enjoyed ourselves, and then uh, we had the some good meetings, the the company Christmas dinner, and then we sent Jason on his way. And I'm here the rest of the week, and then we'll be back as normal next week. But today, things happened this week. Things happened. Yes, one very big thing. So before we get to a very big thing this week, I will wish Jason and all of you, dear listeners, a happy International Civil Aviation Day, the 7th of December, celebrated, established to celebrate ICAO's 50th anniversary or 45th anniversary previously. It is now celebrated every day on the 7th of December. And so happy International Civil Aviation Day to all those who celebrate. Great. I'm happy to have flown internationally on this particular day. There was no cake served on board or anything, but what a nice day to fly. What a nice day to fly. Last night in Everett, Washington, a major, major event. I feel like it got – the phrase that came to mind was slow played, but that's not correct. Underplayed? By Boeing, as kind of all things seem to be these days, the final 747 rolled out of the factory. The final completed 747, all assembled, ready for paint, and then on to its first flight, rolled out of the factory in Everett, Washington, line number 1,574. It will be delivered to Atlas Air early next year. It's a 747-8F. It's the fourth in the batch of Final Four aircraft, and it's the second in the the special Atlas is leasing these particular aircraft. And we talked about this last week in the hopes that we would get a special livery. There's a chance. We don't know yet. The aircraft rolled out still as an unpainted greenie, I guess you would call it. Exactly. There's still time. They can still surprise us with a nice livery. But as of now, it rolled out oddly kind of like any other 747. There was the banner that they put on, like proudly building the whatever number 
747 for Atlas. I think I may have heard that there was like a, a Joe Sutter picture somewhere on the aircraft, but I don't recall seeing that. But whatever livery this aircraft wears, we do not know what it is yet. And if it is special, it has not been leaked yet. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see what the paint shows. And I'm really hoping for for something that indicates that this is a special aircraft. But it's up to the airline at the end of the day. The Boeing can pressure them to to do it, but this is ultimately up to Atlas and whomever it is that they're leasing this aircraft to. So the photos of the, the rollout showed how cleared out the building is. As the final 747 made its way through the production line, Boeing disassembled the tooling that goes into making the 747 and it's kind of pushed up against the sides of the building. No one really knows exactly what's going to happen to that space. Yeah, what was the rush in clearing all that out? It's not like they have any at least public plans to like do anything with that space. I feel like, you know, you've got the people there, you might as well have them do the work to kind of clean things up. But they they cleared out the building, building the building being the largest building by volume in the world, built specifically for the assembly of the 747 and then expanded over the, the years to make way for for various other Boeing aircraft. But it's the end of an era as far as the 747 and, and production is concerned and seeing new 747s roll off the line. But but I, I put up a blog post today because a lot of people were reacting with, oh no, the 747 is going away. It's the last one. It's the end of an era. And, and it is. It- be around for decades to come. Right. It, it does mark the end of an era. But yeah, I was like, okay, let's let's look at some numbers and let's talk about, you know, how many 747s are are still out there. And there are a lot of them. There were 17,500 747 flights in November. 93% of them carried cargo. 5.9% of them carried passengers, and the balance are, are, are military and, and government flights and, and the like. There are a couple other flight types mixed in. There's one 747SP BBJ still floating out there in service, and, and there are a couple engine manufacturers that are using 747s as flying test beds. But for the most part, you know, it, it's a cargo aircraft, which will keep it around not necessarily forever, but it'll certainly feel like forever to us. Yes. Some airlines will keep these in service for as long as they can get their hands on the parts, which will become increasingly difficult. But Jason and I are going to be very old men before the final 747 is retired. I hope so. And I'm willing to bet that, I mean, not to, you know, tempt the thing high atop the whatever, but I'm willing to bet that, that we will be gone before the last 747 lands for the last time. What's the oldest in-service 747 right now? It's probably pushing 50 years old, maybe? The oldest, yeah, right around 50 years old. Yeah. So 50 plus whatever age we are now, and, and we will be ripe old men by that time. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll be right around 90. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So if we live to 90, I would like to see the last 747 flight, wherever, wherever and whenever that might be. But there you go. I, I will say you hinted to this being a low key event, and I will 
echo that, that the images Boeing posted, they were taken by Paul Weatherman, uh, I think Boeing's staff photographer and posted. There is really very little to do for the rollout of the last ever 747. Like there are a couple, maybe dozen of employees in a parking lot next to a fence watching this rollout, or maybe some of those are media. I know some of them are media. But they actually posted a tweet today with the rollout of the first 747. And there are hundreds, if not thousands of people watching the first 747 roll out. And it's a stark comparison to see the last 747 is witnessed by a couple dozen people. And then the press release accompanying it is a couple paragraphs and three bullet points about general information about the 747. Production began, the world's first twin Nile in 1967, spanned 54 years with a total of 1,574 airplane. Built at 250 feet to inches, the 747 is the longest commercial airplane, blah, blah, blah. We know that. The final airplane is a 747-8 freighter. It can carry blah, blah, blah. And that's really it. I really expected more from Boeing to, to celebrate the rollout of the last ever 747, the, the aircraft that saved Boeing. There would not be a Boeing without the 747. And maybe they're saving this for the delivery or the first flight or something, but the, the rollout, the historic moment of it, leaving the factory that saved Boeing, that defines the modern jet age, really they didn't do much of anything, which is supremely disappointing to me. And like you said, maybe they're saving it for the first flight. Maybe maybe they're saving it for the delivery. And, and, I, and I hope they do something for the delivery. But yeah, it, it would have been great to see something at the rollout, You know, a proper celebration, a closing of one of, if not the biggest chapters in aviation history, be, because the aircraft didn't just save Boeing. It ushered in a wholly new era of aviation. I mean, the 707 changed how we thought about the world. It made transoceanic flight really, truly possible on a grander scale. The 737, you know, ushered in kind of the short haul jet age. The 727 built on that. And then the 747 didn't really build on that. It took that concept and ran with it at nearly supersonic speed. The economics of the 747 enabled people who hadn't been able to travel before, people who could never have afforded a ticket on the 707, people who could have never traveled a long distance away from their homes. I mean, we talk about the 707 bringing in the age of jet travel. Yes, that's true. And the 747, you know, certainly. The 747 stands on the 707 shoulders, but it kind of stands on its shoulders and then takes a spring leap. And I think that like the closure of that episode, even though this is a cargo aircraft, even though we've, you know, kind of become so accustomed to being able to get on a plane and fly basically anywhere in the world with one connection. I mean, you can get to pretty much anywhere in the world with one connection if you do it right. But the fact that Boeing, the company that built this aircraft, that designed this aircraft, that kept this aircraft in production for 54 years, and that changed the face of the world with an aluminum tube and four engines, 
just said, okay, we're done. Let's reserve final judgment that maybe Boeing redeemed itself for the delivery of the aircraft, but the rollout was quite disappointing. My goal is that if I complain enough about this now, what happens is they hear it and then do something for the delivery. If that makes you feel better, sure. It doesn't make me feel better. I'm I'm just saying that that's my post hoc rationalization of the rant that I just went on. Okay. I'll accept it. All right. Okay. So speaking of Boeing and not great stuff, the amendment that we talked about from Senator Cantwell last week where it was going to solve all of Boeing's problems basically for free as far as Boeing was concerned, yeah, that's not happening. Whoops. At least not yet. Yeah. So the the Cantwell Amendment, which would have required that Boeing refit, that that would have removed the two-year restriction on certifying the 737-7 and 737-10 MAX without adding a crew alerting system in exchange or in addition to requiring that Boeing retrofit all 737 MAX with the extra angle of attack indicator as well as the stick shaker, that amendment that that Senator Maria Cantwell was workshopping, floating, whatever you want to call it, that we thought would be included in the NDAA, the, the Defense Authorization Act, which is basically a giant pile of money that Congress sends mostly to the Department of Defense, but also includes other things that they know they have to get through that they don't want anybody voting against. And so we thought this would be attached. It's not in this particular bill. And we don't know why, which is quite interesting. We don't know if there was opposition against this, if someone said, if you include this amendment, we're going to torpedo the whole thing, or if they just didn't get around to inserting it. Uh, We don't really know. I'm quite surprised this didn't go through at this point. It seems unlikely at this – what I've read so far is that it's unlikely that the amendment will be added to this particular bill and it could be added to something else, but it doesn't seem likely to be happening this year. Yeah, it, it was very strange to me. And the fact that they didn't add it this time around means that they have to put it somewhere else. And it doesn't seem like something that they're going to do on their own. It doesn't seem like something that's going to be included as a standalone bill because it's really just an amendment to a previous bill that was passed in 2020. And John Ostrow made an interesting point earlier in the week when we were talking about the angle of attack sensor and the stick shaker disable feature. Because those two features are already required to be retrofit as soon as they are certified by EASA and by Transport Canada. So where do they get certified? They get certified on the 737-10 because that is the aircraft they've been developed for. So as soon as the 737-10 gets certified, the clock starts ticking on retrofitting all of the 737-8 and the 737-9 MAX to include third angle of attack sensor as well as the stick shaker disabling feature. So my question was like, how are they going to do that? Like, are they just, have they been putting them up? Because I was under the assumption that these things would be installed on the new builds and then just kind of 
turned on when they got approved. But John's point was that they're not approved yet. You can't insert them onto the aircraft. And it has to be the 737-10 MAX that gets approved before you can retrofit any of these. And, and to his main point was basically that Boeing isn't going to build two different kinds of airplanes, one for Europe and Canada, and then one for everybody else. And so the whole point about requiring the retrofit of the stick shaker and the angle of attack sensors onto all 737-8 and 737-9 aircraft in the US, that was already going to happen basically on all of the new builds. The question then becomes, so that retrofit is, is a question of existing aircraft that are built and already delivered, what happens to those? One assumes that Boeing would want commonality because their argument for all of the things they do is fleet commonality. So one assumes that they would want commonality on a required feature between new build aircraft and existing, you know, existing aircraft. So it's it's a very Boeing was going to do this anyway. The bill just makes it explicit and and puts it, I guess, in writing by Congress. So it's interesting to me that this wasn't included because we've had the Wicker Amendment that wasn't included. We've had the Cantwell Amendment that wasn't included. My goal is to run for Congress and include amendment and we'll call it the Pechenik Amendment and then that won't be included. And then that'll take us into 2030 something. Well, you know who would be really good to have around for, for things like modifying potentially the safety systems on board an aircraft? It's definitely the guys who record podcasts. No, it's engineers. And do you know what company just lost hundreds of very experienced engineers? Well, just say say Boeing for the just say Boeing. The answer is Boeing. Yeah, not great. (laughs) Uh, Article published by Dominic Gates in the Seattle Times today details that last month hundreds of, and I'm quoting, very experienced Seattle Boeing engineers walked out the door last month. They chose to retire early with the realization that they'd have a significant cut to their pension payouts if they delayed. He goes on to note that this is a quirk for pension plans. This is not unique to Boeing, but it's really not great because Boeing has already experienced a significant level of brain drain to other aerospace companies if they don't want to work for for Boeing and just fixing the 7-8 or fixing the 7-3 MAX or whatever and not building a new aircraft. A lot of engineers have gone elsewhere. Not great to see literally hundreds of experienced engineers walk out the door. More than 500 apparently and additional 130 technical staff retired. And apparently Boeing was so driven to re- maintain some of these that they uh, Dominic Gates goes on to say they identified 26 key engineers represented by this union and basically dangled money in their face uh, to the key of $400,000 for 2 years and only like 9 of those 26 actually accepted that i guess a lot of engineers did the math that the extra money Boeing would give them would not counteract or wouldn't be significant enough to offset the loss of their pension so really not great over at Boeing, who is decidedly not looking to roll out a new clean sheet aircraft in the next decade. So why would these engineers stick around anyway? They've got nothing to do that probably interests them, I'm assuming, if their yeah. interest is building a new airplane. <laughs> I don't know if it's to be fair to Boeing, but this wasn't truly a Boeing issue necessarily. This was a internal revenue service 
how things yeah, are I, I said it was not not Boeing specific thing. It's a weird pension thing which most people don't even have anymore. That's what I was kind of getting to. So these particular engineers that they're unionized engineers with SPIA in Washington and they can take their pension as a lump sum. That's a or, hell of a deal by the way. Yeah, they can take their pension, their entire pension. So I'm not exactly sure how their pension is calculated or or exactly what their pension is. Um, but usually it's the last X number of years, a, a percentage of the last X number of years uh, of your salary, generally speaking, but I'm not exactly sure how theirs, theirs is, is calculated. But whatever that number is, they can either take it as a lump sum when they retire or they can take it as an annuity uh, paid out over you know monthly over the rest of of their lives and so what most of most of these folks do is they take it as a lump sum and then invest it with the idea that the investment income from that lump sum will be greater than the monthly annuity that they make for the retirement because inflation is so high in the US at the moment and, and and worldwide the IRS in at the end of November recalculates what that lump sum should be based on the amount of money that you could make by investing that lump sum so the lump sum from last year if they retired before the end of November the lump sum would be much larger because interest rates were lower last year than they are this year. So they did the math and they said, okay, it's not worth it. And as Jason mentioned, they were offered, you know, the not 26 of the the highest rated and and important engineers at Boeing's Washington facility. Nine out of 26 said, okay, $400,000 makes sense to me. The balance said, you know what? I am I'm done. I'm out. I'm retiring. And thank you very much. We'll we'll see you later. So to be more clear, I guess, anyone who took this out wasn't going to be sticking around at Boeing for many, many years to come, I assume. And now that we know that Boeing isn't planning on on rolling out a new clean sheet aircraft anytime soon, it's unclear to me how important these engineers would have been experience-wise to actually going through the details of rolling out a new aircraft, I'm sure the more time, the better. But this doesn't, at the end of the day, leave Boeing in a a not great position to, yes, they have hired lots of new people fresh out of engineering school, or I'm sure they've poached from other aerospace firms, some well-established people. But when they do eventually get around to needing to certify new aircraft, it's going to be a majority of people doing it for the first time. And this is not a, a new concept that we're talking about, but this really seems to to raise the the alert level, I think, at Boeing that the next time they need to do a certification on an aircraft, it's probably going to be a lot more difficult. What this speaks to isn't necessarily Boeing causing the problem, but it's a problem for Boeing. Yeah, exactly. This isn't anything Boeing did. Not completely. I mean, if they had a project for people to work on that they were excited about, maybe they would have been compelled to stay. But Boeing did not say, uh, leave now or, or take less money. Right, right. So it's a long-term concern. It's bad timing and a long-term concern. So there you go. Also bad timing, Airbus saying, we're going to deliver 700 planes this year and then not, not. delivering 
anywhere close to that. Not even close. So Airbus's 2022 delivery target was to achieve, and I'm quoting their quote, around 700 commercial aircraft deliveries in 2022. And after they've done the math of how many have we delivered so far this year, how many will we end up delivering, they missed it by a wide margin. So the annual deliveries for 2022 for Airbus Commercial will be 565 asterisks because they don't count two that uh, Aeroflot could not take due to international sanctions. I think those ended up going to Turkish or something. Turkoflot. Turkoflot, yes. 565 is well short of 700 the last time I checked. And this is because of COVID and supply chain and manufacturing issues. And and just remember, we can't as an industry get above 80% of doing anything without everything falling apart. But they have also lowered the projections for output in the coming years. So the ramp up rate for 2023 and 2024 will be 65. And they hope to achieve a rate of 75 by 2025. So uh, not not great numbers coming out of Airbus. Not great numbers. Not great if you are Wall Street or an analyst or, or well, right. hoping to put Airbus up to their own projections. They didn't even come close. What's interesting to me is that they held out for so long to these projections. Yeah. It's not like they didn't know the writing was on the wall in like, I don't know, August. I mean, the middle of the year, when you're looking at the track figure going, okay, you know, you come to the end of six months and you look at, you know, the end of the end of June and go, well, that's not half of 700. Math is tricky, but I'm sure there may be some sort of, I don't know, financial thing that stopped them from doing that. I, who knows with this space? Uh, yes, the financial thing. The financial things, you know, the, the of things and- just pulling up the order, the deliveries for December, for November, actually. And there were quite a number of aircraft delivered, mostly the A320neo. There were, wow, very few wide body aircraft. I think one, two, three wide, well, three A330s and one, two, three, four, five A350s. So it actually wasn't a terrible month for Airbus. It's just overall, they, they didn't come anywhere near the projections. To Airbus's point about the supply chain issues, I mean, getting parts, getting engines on planes, getting you know the aircraft fully kitted out and ready for a customer has slowed down, which makes the kind of late in the game, beginning of December, oh, we're not going to meet our target surprise thing, just that much more baffling to me. Yeah. We all saw it coming, but I guess they they had to wait to put the numbers together. By the way, it was 28 A320neo and 25 A321neos, a couple of A220s. I think it was six in total of the 300 variety, five A350s, a couple A33900s, and one A33800. And that A330-800 went home today. What a segue. I know. So we had our very own Gabriel Lee down in Toulouse this morning, and he is currently in Kangalooswak after the Air Greenland A330-800 delivery flight. Wait, say that again. Air- Where is he? Kangalooswak. Huh? Well done. 
Thank you. So that's where he is. And he has sat down with the CEO of Air Greenland once again. He had talked with Air Greenland CEO Jakob Nitter previously about what the A33800 was going to open up and some of the things that they were working on in Air Greenland. But he sat down with them today to kind of catch up. And now that they've got the aircraft, now that construction is really underway in Nuke on the expanded airport, what's happening and how things are going. So we'll let Gabe take it away now with his conversation with Jakob Nitter, the CEO of Air Greenland. Can you just give me the headline of this moment, this day? It's it's obviously an incredibly important moment for Greenland, for Air Greenland, for I guess for you. Tell me a little bit about that. I think the, the feeling that I'm feeling right now is just I'm proud. I'm proud of my team. I'm proud of our company. I'm proud of Greenland as a country. And uh, yeah, just uh, happy. Yeah. I noticed that a number of people on board were became quite emotional as we arrived. I haven't been on many delivery flights, but I think it was a, it was an extra... There was an extra significance to it because this is the first new Airbus Air Greenland has ever received, right? And it's the only, it's the one that's going to carry people. Could you talk a little bit about that? I think it was a, quite an emotional experience for all of us. And I think the comparison that we did last night at the delivery event in Airbus, where we compared the size of France, you know, with 67 million people to uh, the 57,000 people of Greenland, Buying one Airbus for a Greenland would be the equivalent of Air France buying 1,176 Airbuses. So that just puts it into perspective. We are a very small nation. So this symbolizes that even though we're a small country, we can actually be a player and, and we can actually achieve great things if, if we work together. And I think that was the emotion that we all felt. It's like, this is a huge moment for all of us. And it was very special. It's kind of like, if you think about it, it's as if a, a medium-sized town in any place would buy an A330neo. It's, 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 in any other situation, it would be a crazy thing to think. Yeah, and, and the other thing is that Air Greenland is critical infrastructure in Greenland. So you will fly with this airplane whether you are going on vacation, visiting friends and family, if you're going to the hospital, if you're ill, or if you're getting married. So many, many different occasions you will be flying on this aircraft. So it, it becomes part of the everyday life and, and part of our society. So it's, it's not just Air Greenland's aircraft, it's, it's all Greenlanders' aircraft. Is this event the beginning of a big sort of period of change for Greenland with the new runways coming in, with sort of ambitions for building up things like tourism? Is this sort of, does this define the beginning of that in a way? Yeah, I think in a, in a way you're right because we are working towards economic independence and uh, working towards becoming an independent country. And part of that is actually achieving things on our own. And this is an example of that. And it's an example of us preparing for a new reality with new potential. So this is a very visual image of that preparation and, and of the potential for the future. You all were getting this plane ready to go for the past few years during during a pandemic with a small team. Could you tell a little bit about that? Yeah. So the easy part is looking in the catalog saying, okay, I want this one and let's sign the contract. And then the hard work begins. And to be honest, we did not know how much work it would take. And we had a very short period of time to do it. So with a small team, everyone has just really pulled together very, very small team who also had, you know, their normal jobs to do besides this huge project. So what made this possible was great leadership from our managers and just great teamwork from all our employees. So it has taken 
a lot of work. And I must also say that the people at Airbus and Rolls-Royce have been very good at uh, supporting us in the process. So it's been a true team effort and it would not have been possible if just one team member sat down and said, no, nah, I don't really want to do this. You know, So everyone pulled through and here we are. I've heard some people ask, you know, okay, why did Air Greenland really need to go and buy a brand new A330 Neo? Why not just lease a slightly less old A330 or something like that? What's, what's your answer for that? Yeah, and that is a good question. And the answer is sustainability. The final choice came down to sustainability. And as you say, we could go for the more economic option and, and lease a, a cheaper aircraft, but then we would not be able to get the fuel savings, the CO2 emission savings, and the possibility of going to a 100% SAF, a sustainable aviation fuel, one day. And part of our future is building tourism. And tourists who come to Greenland, they will want to visit a sustainable destination. And we have to be a big part of the branding of Greenland as a sustainable destination. And we can only do that by showing that we actually mean it. We have to walk the talk. So basically, the choice of buying a brand new Neo was a matter of walking the talk. Do you think that Tukak will become kind of a calling card for these future tourists that are going to come and discover Greenland? I certainly hope so. I'm sure satisfied with uh, the end product here, and I hope that a lot of people will want to, of course, come and experience this nice aircraft, Duka. But of course, people don't buy tickets just to go on airplanes. So uh, they come to visit our beautiful country, our uh, beautiful culture, and we're ready to welcome everyone who wants to come here. Lovely. Okay. Thank you so much. Welcome back. And now we are in for the sprint portion of the episode where we realize we've talked for quite a long time. We've had a lot going on. And now we are going to do our best to shorten Jason's day as much as possible and close out the episode. So we've got a bunch of kind of developments in the aircraft and fleet arena. And the first of which is Air India's went from merging with Vistara and becoming a much larger airline to also, we're going to get more aircraft. And they said, we're going to lease six 777-300ERs and six A320neos and grow even faster than we already said we were going to grow. Okay. We don't know where those aircraft are coming from, or at least I don't know. I don't think we know. But that's a sizable order for 777-300ERs, of which they already have quite a number. So are, are these replacements for aircraft that Air India had neglected? for so long or are these really fleet expansion? I don't know that answer. That's a very fair That's a question, question when it comes to know. Air India because that was a, a big topic when Air India went private is that how many of their aircraft are truly up to the standards of a, a real international airline? How many are salvageable or how many are they going to, I don't know, part out or how many they're going to convert to freighters? Hopefully these 6777s are in better shape than the ones Air India has been known for in the past few years of, of just not keeping up. That's a very fair point. Mm -hmm. Speaking of keeping up aircraft, Lufthansa has brought its first A380 out of storage in anticipation for return to service in the middle of 2023. The aircraft was down in Spain in long-term storage. They brought it out to Frankfurt. They flew from Teruel to Frankfurt with the gear down because they don't have the facilities at uh, Tarmac Aerosaves facility in Spain to do a, an A380 gear swing. So they said, well, we're, we're just, we haven't 
completed that thing in the checklist, so we're going to fly it with the gear down. And they flew it to Frankfurt where they're going to do the gear swing so that they can then send it and do a little bit of maintenance so that they can then send it to Manila for heavy maintenance to get the aircraft fully prepared for return to service. Now, was it Lufthansa that in 2020 said that the A380 would only come back in exceptional circumstances where travel rebounds to the degree that they can't predict and they need those aircraft back? I think that was Lufthansa that said that. Yes. Well, exceptional circumstances have occurred and they need the A380s back and I am happy. Yeah, they need the A380s back there. They're preparing to bring back three to start. And if things go well, if, if demand continues to climb, they could bring back additionally 380s. But it'll be three to start, and the first will return to service in mid-2023. All right. Now bring back the American A330s, the Delta 777s, and the BA747s, and we'll be happy. The last one's probably not going to happen. I don't think any of those are going to happen. No. Well, I can dream, right? You work on that. Okay. Speaking of dreams, WestJet is going west for once. I mean, which is really interesting because they their long haul expansion was east and only east, and now they are going west. They are finally opening a Trans-Pacific route. WestJet will add Calgary, Tokyo to its route map shortly. All right. On the 787. So that would nice. be an interesting one. Yeah. Sad to see them go from the, the East Coast. It was always an option, not one that I ever exercised because I really don't want to connect internationally through Toronto. But those, those WestJet 787s are, are, are quite nice. So good for the West Coast of Canada. Another option to fly out to Asia instead of just having Air Canada. Yeah. And Jason, this was a story that you were following much more closely than I, and the report has come out on the Viva Air Colombia A320 that landed, I believe it was with just a few hundred kilograms of fuel. One thimble. (laughs) thimble, yes. There you go. So the report is out. Yeah. The initial report is out. It was that not great incident where the Viva Air Colombia aircraft landed after diverting with very, very, very little fuel left. Um, The initial report is actually quite interesting in that everyone kind of did everything by the book and and correctly. So whenever something like this happens, you automatically assume, not rightly, that somebody somewhere screwed up. And that just wasn't the case that when this aircraft took off, the pilots did all their checks. They had the the meteorology reports. They had their tasks. They had the information at their disposal that they needed that said the weather was going to be fine for their arrival. Turns out the the weather rapidly deteriorated through the region and the weather was no longer fine and they diverted and then they diverted from their diversion point. And then lots of other aircraft got stacked up in a hold and the air traffic controller got very busy putting them all in a stack. And it just turned out that there it was just bad circumstances. Everyone did everything right. Thankfully, nothing bad happened, but this aircraft was one more go around away, probably from disaster, I would say. But it, it's just an interesting read, and we'll link to it that everyone did everything well. I think the only slip up was the, uh, some slow ACARS messages being sent by the crew and that it got stuck in the computer or something like that, or maybe receiving it. That communication was not a, as quick as it needed to be. But really, it's more of a, um, uh, not a procedure thing, but the technology of getting more accurate and more real-time forecasting and real-time weather to flight crews varies wildly by airlines. Some airlines have real-time 
data to pilot iPads and through A cars and other airlines have minimal information. It depends on the airline, depends on the aircraft, depends on the country and the individual airport, because some of these airports didn't have TAFs, I think was, was something that the report mentioned. So just wanted to give that update that actually everyone did everything right. And yeah. I mean, we'll take it. I mean, we'll, we'll take the safe outcome and everyone did everything right. I will take it. But one more thing to say on that, the rapidly deteriorating weather, I feel like I don't feel like I know science says this is going to become more of a thing as climate change continues and weather gets more extreme. This is going to become more of a thing where the weather as it was when you departed is not what it is when you're on approach or landing. That's going to become increasingly problematic. And hopefully the technology to provide real-time weather forecasting and real-time weather information becomes more robust to prevent issues like this. I mean, I'm all for it. Let's do it. What do we need to do? Money. Okay. Okay. Problem solved. (laughs) So let's go to saving money, or at least kind of saving money. This was the thing you really wanted to talk about. I don't care so much, but you said, and I quote, I can rant about this for a few seconds. So I'm just going to to sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Sure. Well, Amsterdam's airport, Schiphol, tweeted out today, and so did KLM, that they're testing out a new taxi bot. I don't think it's a taxi bot. I'm pretty sure there's a human and it's a tug. It's just a tug tugging an aircraft. But instead of the aircraft powering up its engines and taxiing under its own power to the active runway, Amsterdam's airport is very proud of themselves that they are testing the tugging of a KLM 737-700 out to the runway where it will then power up and take off. But I've been around this industry not a long time, but long enough to know that I feel this is on like a five-year cycle. Every five years, the wheel is reinvented on how you can get an aircraft from the gate to the runway with something taking it there other than the aircraft's own engines. Paris Air Show 2013, I think that the big thing on this was actually integrating kind of like an e-bike motor in the nose wheel of the aircraft that would electronically power the aircraft out to the active runway. And I think there were two competing, one from Honeywell and, and one startup, I believe, pitching this. And then it just it just disappeared. It went silent. And now KLM and, and Chipple are kind of tooting their own horn that they've like reinvented the tug bringing the aircraft out to the runway. And I, I just, it either works or it doesn't. Do it or don't do it. Why are we still testing this? That's all I got. I don't know. It's not a bad idea. No, it's a good idea and we should do it if it works at least. But I don't understand why they still have to test this. Like different tests have gone on for for decades at this point. I think Virgin Atlantic that's with the A340-300s like literally decades ago. The system that you were mentioning is quite extensive. The Safran Honeywell system, the the electric green taxing system, the EGETS if you will, was basically attached electric motors to the main landing gears of the aircraft and then had the APU drive those electric motors so that you could DC-9 style power back the aircraft without a tug and then get to the runway with those electric motors. So neat idea. This is nothing new. 
Will it eventually succeed? Will we eventually figure something out? Maybe? I don't know. Do you get to the point where you just design procedures that are efficient enough for them to go, you know what? We can just turn on the engines and go to the go to the runway. Again, I don't know. But anything at this point that saves fuel, cuts emissions, and makes things more efficient is a good thing. And I hit that more efficient thing because the issue that I know a lot of operators, a lot of airport operators had, and a lot of airlines had with the electric taxi systems is that you're basically delaying the startup of the engines and engines need to run for a certain amount of time before they can be used to actually fly the aircraft. And so if you get to the runway without your engines on and you've gotten there via electric taxi bot, a little metal thing that pulls the aircraft along the taxiway a la car wash style, whatever gets you there that isn't the engines, you still have to give the engines time to warm up sure. and get but ready to go. This will be especially helpful at airports that are congested like at JFK. It could take you an hour plus to get to the runway. So this could be exceptionally mm-hmm. helpful. And, and, and Amsterdam too is a, a major airport and it could take a long time to get from the gate to the active runway. So- Let's just do it already. That would be nice. Or don't. Or don't. Do it or don't. Do it or don't. I'm glad they're working on it, but hopefully they figure it out so that it works holistically. Yes. Last thing before we go, what has become quite the the lengthy episode. Wow, I didn't realize so much had happened this week. Right? Last week, we talked about an unidentified customer for five E195E2s, Embraer's E-Jet. And... Right after we hit stop on the recording, they announced who that customer was. So it turns out that that Binter is the customer with exciting new plans for future growth. Good for them. And they're gonna do they're gonna do that with five E one ninety five E twos. So congratulations, Binter Canarius, and we wish you all the best. That was bizarre. I've never seen any airframer put out a release saying somebody's taking airplanes and then like 48 hours later oh yeah it's these guys over here like you couldn't just wait they had to make sure the check cleared i I guess or probably some sort of financial market thing like they wanted the good news out on like a tuesday i I don't know but it was really strange it was bizarre i wish binter good luck in its exciting new plans for future growth absolutely There you go. Well, Jason, it was great to see you in Stockholm. It was great to be with you here, and I'm glad you made it home safe. Didn't even have to go through Finland this year. There you go. And your plane didn't get frozen to the ground. And everyone who's listening to the podcast, thank you so much. We're coming to the close of the year. We'll have a couple new episodes before we get to the end of the year, and then we'll have our, our customary recap of the year that was and I hope you're looking forward to that as much as I am. Uh, If you're wondering about the quiz portion of the podcast, we're working on that. We've just had so many people express interest that we're trying to find a way to make it so that as many people can play as possible. So we're exploring a couple options, not only playing on the podcast, but playing elsewhere outside of the podcast. We can do that. 
Yes, indeed we can. And I'll say more about that in the coming weeks. We're talking to some folks about making that work as efficiently as possible so that we can have more people play and that as many people can participate at the same time as they want. So that's all I'm going to say about that for now. But rest assured, we are going to do more quizzes in future episodes and outside of the podcast, uh, kind of under a larger Flight Radar 24 umbrella. So stay tuned for more on that. In the meantime, this has been episode 193 of AvTalk. I'm Ian Pechnik, here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening, and I'm going to bed. 